Hey, welcome to the Gospel Rant. This is Dr. Bill Senior. Uh, we're picking up in our trek through Romans, the book of microaggressions. Uh, this is number 19. I could have subtitled this, is it a covenant of works or a covenant of grace? Uh, so anyway, I want to pick up where we left off in Romans 10. Paul is making a distinction between the Gentiles and the Jews and the possibility of a new relationship with God. It's often taught today that God treated the two groups, Gentiles and Jews, differently. The two-covenant theology, uh, also broadly called dispensationalism. The Jews were saved by works, were taught, and the Gentiles by grace. And it seems that most Christians have heard this so many times from so many pulpits and so many commentaries that it's just a truism. I mean, everybody goes, well, look, it's universal. Uh, But this is the gospel rant. So let me rant boldly and say it's not universal. Matter of fact, it really doesn't hold a lot of water biblically. And I'm going to try to explain in a short bit of time. But it definitely will start this dialogue, right? You don't have to agree with me. You, you'd be wrong, but you don't have to agree with me. Only kidding. All right, so I want to establish, even though it's going to be a microaggressor for so many, that both groups, Jews and Gentiles, were saved based upon the very same thing. In other words, the same process of salvation. All right? That's first. And secondly, I want to somehow show that this is consistent with the giving of the law, particularly on Mount Sinai. Okay? We can do this. All right, we left off with Paul quoting Deuteronomy 30 in Romans 10, uh, 6 to 7. And here's the Old Testament extended passage with some comments. All right, so Deuteronomy 30, verse 11. Now, what I am commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. Well, you know, that's that's interesting because the, the law seems to be pretty difficult. I mean, I find it difficult. I mean, he's certainly not talking about the perfectionism required by the covenant of works, right? The covenant of works is basically simply you're saved based upon you earning God's favor by doing enough good things, right? So he says it's pretty, it's easy, right? I, I don't know. What is he referring to? It's a troubling verse. Maybe we can read into it that the Jews, that's who he's talking to, were saved on the basis of works of some kind. Um, not too difficult, right? But I don't think so. Deuteronomy 30, verse 12. It's not up in heaven so that you will have to ask who will ascend to heaven to get it and proclaim to us that we may obey it. Uh, Verse 13, nor is it beyond the sea so that you have to ask who will cross the sea to get it and proclaim it to us so that we may obey it. And the, the idea of those two verses is, man, it seemed like a pretty impossible task. You've got to go all the way up to heaven or beyond the sea. But in verse 14, he says, No, the word, which is an interesting shift, the word is very near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart, so you may obey it. So there's right, this word, whatever this word is, the metaphor is that you can just reach out. It's within your reach. You can touch it. You can grab it, whatever it is. Well, if that's the case, this is Deuteronomy, right? The law. What has happened to the salvation by works, by doing good things? Where is keeping the commandment in these four verses? It, this seems to be saying that it doesn't take a lot of works, if any at all. And I don't know about you, but yeah, it's kind of good news to me because I can't seem to obey the law, right? Can you, honestly? So 
what's being said. Verse 15. See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. So there's the two choices. Verse 16, for I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, and to keep his commandments, decrees, and laws. Then you will live and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. Well, now that sounds like a covenant of works. If you do these things, you will be blessed, and if you don't do these things, you'll suffer death and destruction. Verse 17, but if your heart turns away and you're not obedient... And if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. Well, turns away a lot or a little for a long time. Where's the boundaries in this? What does it mean to be not obedient? I'm not obedient every day. So this is, you know, this is pretty tough to see. And it's beginning to sound like a covenant of works perfection again. Very confusing, right? And again, if whatever it is, we're screwed. Maybe God's thinking about grading on a curve. That's not clear either, and we know better than that. He is a screaming perfectionist. He's God. Uh, No, a few verses before this, Moses writes this, verse 30. Uh, Verse 2 of chapter 30, And when you and your children return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart, That's a lot. And with all your soul, that's pretty much everything, according to everything I command you today. So in a few verses before the section we read, it's perfectionism. So very, very confusing. Am I right? So reading this, how is anyone saved? How is anyone rescued, delivered, redeemed? I mean, this is too many good works. All, every and I guess that means my whole life, right, since birth. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm already messed up. How do Jews, he's talking to Jews, end up in the loving arms of God, drenched in his favor and adoration? I mean, if it's close, you can grab it, but as perfectionism, those two don't jive to me. Uh, chapter 30, verse 6, here's the answer. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts. So who's doing it? The Lord your God, circumcise your hearts. And remember, one of the laws was you need to be circumcised. But God is going to circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that, in order that, which will cause you to love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. So the command was you need to do that and everything. And then a couple verses later, God's going to actually circumcise your heart. And then you will actually be motivated to love him with all your heart, with all your soul. So, what what do we take it? I mean, what do we make of this? It seems like God leads the dance. That the circumcision, before I can successfully love Him with all my heart, with all my soul, I need to be circumcised, and He does that without me lifting a finger. All right, and in verse six of chapter thirty, zero works in that verse. You're passive. You're just submissive. You're dependent. The only one working is God, and he is touching and doing an operation on generic Jews, by the way. It it doesn't say they have to be physically circumcised or temple worshipers or uh, caught up on their sacrifices or they've fed the poor. It doesn't say any of that. Any Jews is generic. God will circumcise generic hearts. Very confusing. And it is, by the way, if you hold on to the adage that I'm ranting against, that Jews are saved by the covenant of works. 
Um, okay, let's look at the Gentiles. Here's what we typically say, typically say from the pulpit, is that Gentiles, in contrast, are saved not by works, but by grace. All right, back to Romans chapter 9, verse 30. What shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue, and that's moved decisively towards righteousness, and, and at core this is a right relationship with God, uh, that the Jews were supposed to be known for, but the Gentiles, they didn't look for that, but Paul argues they've obtained it, meaning they've made it their own. They've reached out and grabbed it. A righteousness, a right relationship that is by faith. So this right relationship is of faith. It's not, it's not by faith. It's of faith. It's a faith relationship. Verse 31, but Israel, who pursues, same word, uh, moved decisively toward a law of righteousness. Very different phrase here, this a law of. We're not quite sure what Paul, he's saying something is very important, but it seems like an anomaly, a law of righteousness, a law of right relationship. And if the Israel who pursued that, they haven't attained it. They haven't arrived at it. Uh, verse 32, why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. So uh, literally, why? Not by faith, but by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, meaning they crashed into this uh, rock face is, is the idea. So they're pursuing this relationship, but they crashed into a, to a uh, this huge boulder. Verse 33, as it is written, see I lay in Zion, a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who trusts in him, faiths in him, will never be put to shame, uh, will never fail relationally. All right, so what was it about the good news of Jesus, that's what Paul's talking about, and the gospel that Jesus, strictly because of what he did 2,000 years ago, that person can actually experience the love of God, the same love that the Father has for the Son. So what is it about that good news that frustrates the religious efforts of the Jews, that causes them to crash and burn while they're pursuing that relationship, while Gentiles, non-Jews, not all but some, uh, didn't find it hard at all to fall into the, in the arms of God. Well, here's my suggestion, and I think it begins to clear up the theological issues, many, at least for me, and push back if you need to, right? Uh, get in touch with us, bill at gospel-app.com, and let's keep the dialogue going. But first, don't do it immediately. Take some time to process it, search the scripture, um, and I'll give you some more, by the way. I suggest that this is a microaggression for Christians today. I'm poking fingers in the, in the eyes of a lot of theologians. So here goes. I'm going to suggest, I think this is clear, that God has set before the Gentiles and the Jews a salvation, right, by works and grace together, meaning synonymous. They end up the same. All right, don't flame out. Don't let your head explode. Just hear me out. Here we go. Uh, You'll see the consistency and the confusion. So what reason... Were Adam and Eve, who, right, this is pre-Jews, technically not Jews at all, why were they ejected from their relationship with God, their righteousness? Did they lose it by falling from grace or doing something contrary to God's demands, works? Well, uh, we can certainly say that they fell from relations with God by works. That's clear. But how 
were they to return to right relationship with God? Uh, and, and I think this is part of the Cain and Abel story, right? The offerings. Uh, how, how would Adam and Eve get back into a right relationship with God? Well, there's only one way that we know of. Uh, Paul kind of builds on it without saying it exactly, but Jesus would have to take on their sins on his shoulders, die in their place. Then they would receive or be received as total dependence in this perfect relationship, a better one than they had in, in, in even Eden. So they fell by works and are saved, right? If they are, we can infer that, I think, biblically. Uh, But if they were to be saved, it would be to be saved by grace, by the death of Jesus applied to them. So way early in the Old Testament, God's covenant with humanity was works. Uh, Oh, wait, wait, wait. It was grace, right? Because it required Jesus. Or is it a hybrid of both, right? Something that we don't talk about much. How about the descendants of Abraham? Now we're getting closer to the formation of the Jewish people. Not yet. Uh, We're in Genesis 12, not Exodus. So here's the question. Did Abram enter a right relationship, right? Saved, adopted with God due to good works. Was it a covenant of works? Or was it a covenant of grace by faith? Well, you can read Genesis 12 to 17 on your own. And look, it's a huge gap. We're not told anything about Abraham's good works or tendency to good to do good works. We don't read anything about Abram before God noticed him that would make God notice him, much less reward him uh, with this exclusive, unconditional blessing in Romans uh, Genesis 12. I mean, he was a regular guy. He pimped his wife twice. So, no, he it wasn't a covenant of works it was a covenant of grace and he just accepted it submitted to it was embraced by it depended upon it in other words all of those things are synonymous with faith abraham was saved by grace and often to fit our narrative we teach his faith as it was as if it was a redeeming work so if you want to be saved there's one work that you need to do whether you are a workser or a gracer you need to really work at really believing well enough uh, right? So what is it, a third covenant? There's works and grace and then a covenant of faithing of some kind? I mean, it's absurd. Uh, but, but that's what so many of us imply. And it gets very confusing. All right, let's talk about Jews. What about Israel? How about Israel on Mount Sinai, the giving of the law and post-giving of the law, right? the, the era of Moses? Well, Certainly, we're to infer that the Ten Commandments and all of the ancillary case law of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, because that's what it is, all of that implies that Israel is to achieve relationship with God by keeping the law, and it sounds like a covenant of works, right? It seems that way, Um, and the passage we read in Deuteronomy seems to imply that, but like I said, it was confusing. But if you go to Deuteronomy 28 and following, you'll see something fascinating that's very frustrating. And here it is. Clearly, if they do everything that is written in the law, every bit of it, all, every, without fault, without error, they will then get all of the blessings. So it it is a covenant of works, of perfection. And and included in that blessing is an experiential right relationship, righteousness with God. Well, it sounds like a work salvation, and it is, and it isn't. You know, yes and no. Look, if that was God's plan to present to the Jews, if you're perfect, I'll let you in. Really? 
I mean, if those laws were more than guidelines, if they were strict, you'd better do this, that must be individually and corporately kept, or no go on any relationship, the Jews are screwed. And have every kind of reason to complain in Paul's day about how God treats them differently from the Gentiles. How God treats the Gentiles gives them such an easy path. And maybe that's exactly what Paul is trying to discuss in dialogue in Romans, the, the microaggression he's trying to toss out there on the, on the tent floor, giving voice to this sense of unfairness and resentment that would certainly be among the Jews if, if they understand that they had to be perfect and the Gentiles didn't. I mean, right? That would be resentful. So if, if that's what's happening in Deuteronomy, Leviticus, and Exodus, it's impossible for any of them to pull it off. Adam and Eve didn't pull it off. Abram didn't pull it off. It's absolutely impossible. It doesn't help that they were historically so bad at it, by the way. No judgment. I mean, I'm not good at it. But Jewish listeners, don't be offended by this. I mean, no offense. You know, a microaggression, sure, but that's kind of fun. But check out the prophets. Right? The Jews corporately blew it big time over and over, and the exile is the proof of a conviction in the heavenly courts. Don't even try to argue that, that you weren't convicted of this. You were. You, you've got a record. I, I do too. So, is there another way of looking at covenant and works kind of stuff? Yeah, 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 yeah. And particularly Mount Sinai. Oh my goodness, I hope this helps. What if, you following me? What if, pass this on, <laughs> what if the giving of the law on Mount Sinai? as well as the books, uh, Deuteronomy, Leviticus, all those laws, was to expose Israel's, and mine, but Israel's total inability to ever earn the relationship with God, meaning righteousness. What if it was bring them to, to a point where they were on their knees going, who can do this? I can't. All right, so follow me. By the, uh, At the time of Mount Sinai, uh, Israel had been in Egypt for generations, and I'm going to suggest they were more Egyptian than Jews. And that's arguable, but you know what I'm talking about culturally. They had been for generations more affected by Egyptian culture than Jewish culture. More. And certainly they were culturally slaves, right? Not free men and free women. And no doubt they'd internalized that identity a little or a lot. And I'm going to suggest a lot. All right, following me so far. What do we know about slaves? Well, they're wildly works-oriented. Uh, it's, it's survival for slaves. You need to do everything your master tells you to do. And you, you just can't fall short on anything because that's how you get whipped or beaten or, or worse. But if you obey the letter of the law, uh, you're good. And if you more than obey, you would expect, you'd, you would almost require humbly, I guess, a reward of some kind. Uh, an attaboy from your master. That's slave mentality. Your relationship with your master is your life. It's your context. How your master sees you, treats you, treats your family. And it's largely a function of how faithful you are, whether you do the law on any any given day. Right? You can't store it. If, you're, if you've been good for three years and then one bad day, you could get whipped. Right? Uh, and by the way, I, I understand in the metaphor, sometimes masters and often can be indifferent, abusive, unkind, or unfair. I understand that. All right. Uh, but, but pin that on the board. All things equal, you are raised to be obedient to the master's law. That's your focus. That's your lens. You fear the master, and you find ways, tips, tricks, and techniques to please your master 
uh, not doing too much, but just, you know, doing enough so that it will go well with you. And you have to understand the master to do that so that you and he would be righteous, right? It's not a great relationship, master-slave, but it is a relationship. And to have a right one, you obey. He gives the law, you obey. And if you don't obey, there's punishment. And if you do obey, uh, there's, there's reward. It's all about survival. Covenant is implied of works, right? That's a slave statement. You can't count on the master's mercy. Uh, you can't count on the master's, his or her compassion to treat you well if you fail. It's got to be works. That's the rule. That's the law. So looking back at Mount Sinai, certainly if that's what God had in mind, he isn't moving the whole concept of adoption and, and sonship and redemption and relationship down the field very far if he's just replacing one set of rules for another, one system of slavery for another. And But I've heard that preached so often, right? And and it makes sense to me now why the people of God, after the, there was reading of the laws, they all said unanimously, all this we will do, because that's what slaves would say. What else are they going to say? No, nah, we'd like to do number one through seven, but eight, can we get some editing? No, it's ridiculous, because they're slaves, and, and they fear what would happen if they resisted. So, of course, they're going to say, all this we will do. That's what slaves would say. And I remind you, the the disciples when Jesus gave them some, some wisdom, laid it on the line, they said, well, then who can be saved, right? They're not speaking as slaves there. They're speaking of, as friends of Jesus, two different things. All right, so what if God had something else in mind at Mount Sinai that was moving the ball, the relationship ball, down the field a lot? What if it was radical? What if the law was given to slaves to expose them as failures, abysmal failures, Right? Uh, and you know, I'm I'm going to argue is that's how you get to slaves. Is first of all they fail, and then they go, "I need help," and then the master can reach down and show them compassion. But first, they have to fail. Uh, first, I have to fail. And by the way, the Ten Commandments, at a surface level, honestly, are pretty easy to do. I, and I was speaking to an Orthodox Jew in Israel, and I asked him how he was doing with the over 600 laws in Judaism. He hung his head and in a moment of deep humility and honesty said, well, I've got the top three to five down pretty well. And the others, I'm just going to need God's abundant mercies. Meaning, look, I haven't killed anybody. I haven't committed adultery. I go to worship. But the rest, yeah, hit or miss. I'm going to have to trust that God is grades on a curve and that he is compassionate. Well, that's not moving the ball very far. What, what kind of gift did God give to his beloved slave-minded people at Mount Sinai? He gave them a stumbling block to trip over because they can't do a single law of the Ten Commandments ever. Not perfectly. I mean, daily we're breaking them. Right? Jesus unpacked and expanded the true meaning of, of the Ten Commandments. Murder includes being angry at somebody. Adultery means lusting in your heart. Right? We break the law regularly every day. So God gives his people, his people who are slaves, he could, he could, he could wave his little finger and, and, and make them not slaves, but instead he treats them and honors them as they are, as they come, and he, gives, he, he wants them to experience failure in their own abilities and hard work. 
they're going to mess it up. And they do, by the way. That is the story. And they're going to fear the master. Humanly speaking, they will know shame. And God redeems shamed people. So it is a covenant of works in one way, meaning it involves works. But the works isn't a way that you're successful. The works is a way that you're a failure. Because they have to do it perfectly from birth. They, they have to earn relationship. But no one, no one apart from Jesus has ever done that or come close. So it's a covenant of works, but it's also a covenant of grace. When they fail, and they will fail, then all they need to do is look upward, empty hands, shamed failures like children with soiled arms lifted up to their father. They look into God's eyes and they see God's grace, his mercy, uh, his compassion, and he lifts them, lifts them up, failed former slaves, and adopts them into a right relationship and gives them a new heart. So it's a covenant of works and grace, Old Testament and New Testament. It's the same, right? Um, some more. The reason that God can extend such a gift, an adoption, is back to covenant of works again. This is so cool. Right, so I said it's covenant of works, which leads to failure and then grace. But it's also, in a bigger sense, a covenant of works, because Jesus did all of the works. He he was perfect. The entire book of the law, one hundred percent A plus plus plus, and based upon covenant of works, he unilaterally solely earns all of the blessings of the heavenlies, including this perfect relationship with God. Somehow that earning is passed to my resume under the table into my biography, my CV, and I get all the blessings that Jesus, is, that Jesus earned. It's crazy. So I'm loved by God perfectly as if I had kept all the, the law, every jot and tittle. I didn't. Yeah, right? That doesn't surprise anybody. So it is indeed a covenant of works. It's just that Jesus did it. It's a covenant of grace because Jesus's record of works is by grace applied to me and to Abram and to David and to Moses. So it's true for Jews and Gentiles alike. But the stumbling block Paul is arguing for Jews is, is just this mental headspace they're in is that they're still, still stuck on the law. They still have that slave mentality. They still feel the need to jump through God's hoops, to fear God and to fear his retribution. Knowing that they've already failed brings them shame, which causes them to look away, uh, to work harder sometimes. It's just ridiculous. Um, So during the days of Paul, they still are thinking uh, the shame involved in the exile. It was it was hundreds of years before, but it was part of their narrative, part of their their identity. So uh, they're they're being offered a covenant of works that they've already messed up by their teachers. It just doesn't register in their brains that they can benefit from the success of another Jesus. That that can actually be transferable. Uh, too much shame to receive that, right? Because they don't trust the master; they fear the master. And particularly a Jesus that was betrayed by them, by Jewish leaders. I mean, Rome too, don't get me wrong. But but they were involved in it. They didn't bow down and worship him as God. So there's lots of emotional baggage, lots of shame, lots of sense of failure, not living up to expectation, and knowing that they've screwed up already. Uh, So uh, Romans 11, verse 2, God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know that what... 
Don't you know what the scripture says in a passage about Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I'm the only one left, and they're trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, verse 5 of chapter 11, at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer by works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. So it is a covenant of grace for Jews, right? Right? And yet it's a covenant of works because to, to, to get that, they actually have to go through Jesus. So if you go back through Romans 9 to 11, and in particular, uh, you will see that this is consistent, I think. All Israel will be saved, meaning all who experience the faith of Abraham, Jews and Gentiles alike. First, who see and admit that they've already blown it. There's no way we can do the law. Let's face it, we break the Ten Commandments every day. I mean, I do. And this can lead to shame and frustration and denial, blaming of God, legalism, uh, venting on the Gentiles, right? Just acting like an ashamed, afraid slave. And two, that you can throw yourself, the failed slave, upon the grace of God, meaning in short, embrace what Jesus did on the cross as, as, as your own, and ask God to make you experience his love and this right relationship, meaning faith, the faith of the unrighteous, flawed Abraham. Grace and works together, together, not two covenants, but one is the same gospel. We both require the Holy Spirit to give us a new heart, Jews and Gentiles, right, that can actually love and be loved. That's first, Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. But we also need a daily filling of power from the Spirit in order for this grace to make sense to our brain. So we need daily grace so that we don't stumble over works, uh, that stumbling block on a daily basis, because we'll fall back to that. We're just not much different from the Jews that way. In the end, God will circumcise the hearts of Jews, and they will experience and embrace the very same relationship that we, the many of the Gentiles, are also experiencing. Both of our groups require the very same thing, grace and works, a covenant that incorporates both, uh, not separated. To put it another way, uh, I think this is helpful, but maybe not, but I'll toss it out there. It is first a gospel of works, and the grace is that Jesus' works are attributed to my account. So it's grace and works together. All right, a lot there. Uh, 30 minutes in, you'll need to process it, maybe listen to it a couple times, because you probably haven't heard this. Give me feedback, bill at gospel-app.com. And look, if you like this podcast, and if you want to pick fights with other people, just send it on. Send it to your pastor, send it to your small group, send it to your church leaders and elders, send it to, uh, to, to other folks. And let's get this dialogue going. I think we've screwed this one up. And just let us know what you think. Ready? Well, we'll see you next time on the Gospel Rant. Need more of God's power in your life? I'm Christina Patterson, host of the Teach Us to Pray podcast, providing practical tips on how to grow your faith through prayer. Subscribe at lifeaudio.com.